Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father to a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The word of the Lord. How are we? Good. <laughs> first message in the new building, it's also the first message on money. <laughs> uh, let's pray and we will uh, we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Um, you don't give us what we want, you give us what we need transform us, you change us, you pry our fingers off idols that we cling to, you turn our hearts to delight in Jesus. And so Father, I pray that you would do that again tonight. I pray that in all of us, the place where this text needs to get under our skin, needs to hit us the wrong way, I pray that it would do it. Where we need to be changed, where we need to be convicted uh, of the that our hearts love something more than you, I pray that you would do it. And God, I pray that we'd be changed here tonight. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, it was maybe two years ago. About two years ago, um, a, an interesting, somewhat humorous, um, but enraging story took place um, all over the news. Um, we had just entered kind of this season of recession that the, 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 uh, 
the economy was, was spiraling down um, and seeming to lead the way were the auto companies. And so um, in great fear that they were going to actually uh, achieve the, the great status of bankruptcy, um, they decided that they were going to fly to Washington, D.C., um, and they were going to stand before Congress and ask for money. Remember this? Um, and so um, rather than fly on Southwest Airlines from Detroit to Washington, D.C., which they fly from Detroit to Washington, D.C., um, they decided they were going to take a private jet. Now, um, the common man like me picked that up, and, and the news agencies picked this up, and, and immediately they became the target of the problem. CEOs who take private jets to go beg money from the government. And, and so um, this, this story just went everywhere. It, um, they were berated, they were belittled, they were mocked. Um, they, were, they were told over and over and over again that that, that was simply an absolutely ridiculous. Um, that, that was held up as the, one of the key problems in the economy. And, and that incident on the other side illustrates um, something that I just want to say up front before we get into this text. It seems that there is no more pervasive reality and problem in our culture living in this country than the love of money. And yet there is no more easily deflected, more easily we can find someone else who has that problem. There's no other issue like this one that sitting where you're sitting and standing where I'm standing, it's the easiest one to say that's somebody else's problem. That's an issue that the rich people have to deal with. That's an issue that, that whatever next rung up there is on the, the, the financial ladder, no matter how wealthy you are or how impoverished you are, whatever it is, this problem, the problem that this text addresses, the problem that, that Solomon is going to put his finger on and begin to dig his finger into tonight, it's the easiest problem in the world for us to say that's someone else's problem. And so my prayer tonight, my prayer all day has been that you would realize that what this text is addressing is you. Not the person sitting next to you. Um, all of us are, most of us, not all of us, most of us are getting started in our jobs and our careers and so it's easy to, to see this, this problem up ahead of you. It's not up ahead of you. It's sitting directly in the seat you're sitting in. It's here in your own heart. And so, so I want to plead with you, as we listen to Solomon tonight, to listen to Solomon tonight. Don't be thinking of your parents. Don't be thinking of your friend who's not here, who just got the raise. Don't be thinking of those things. Be examining your own life. I'm going to plead with you to do that. Will you do that? It's, it's just a new building. You can laugh and you can look at me and say yes. I can see you. I know the lights are bright, but I still can see you. Okay. So if you fall asleep, I can see you. Okay. Solomon begins the text in verse 8 and 9 with two fundamental premises that we need to start with um, that kind of serve his larger purpose in this text. He begins with two ideas. The first one is this. He says that if you see in a province oppression of the poor, if you see a violation of justice and righteousness... You need to know that that will be judged by somebody. 
And it may not be till later, that may not be until God rights all wrongs, but someday, someone, something is going to judge those oppressions. It's going to judge those injustices. So he's going to begin to talk about what it means and how we're to handle our wealth. However it is that, that you go about earning your wealth, if you, maybe someone in here is a budding young entrepreneur, and you're going to start a company, it's going to be amazing, and I want to be your friend. <laughs> and so I'm going to tell you this now, so that it's not later. If you oppress the poor, if you take advantage of those who work for you, you will be judged by that. So Solomon begins by establishing that premise. But then he adds a second premise to it. Um, And and it seems like a lot of people go through this stage in college, um, particularly if they go to a Christian college. Where are the Christian college? They're there. (laughs) You, You go through this phase where you begin to automatically assume the man is evil. That those who produce wealth and own companies and have jobs, they're evil. They're just all about themselves and money and they're bad. And I want to just live in poverty and have dreads and smell funny. And I want to, that, so we all go through that phase. Not all of us. Not some of us went through that phase. But some of us go through that phase. And, and, and so the second premise is primarily directed at you. Ready? Verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. And so he says, on the one hand, if you oppress the poor, how you gain your wealth really does matter. It really matters. And if you oppress the poor to get there, you'll be judged for that by somebody. It may not be your boss, but it will be someone. And secondly, the production of wealth, the cultivation of fields to produce food, the productions of goods that can be sold, those, that, that is a genuine gain. It is a good. Okay? So the Bible's stance on wealth, on, on entrepreneurship, on starting businesses, on the production of goods and services, on, on the generation of wealth in a society, it says on the one hand it matters how you get it, and on the other hand it says, but it's a good thing. And, and I had a lunch this week with a, with a friend of mine um, who's in this church, and, and, and the dude is wired to be an entrepreneur. He just He can't look at something without deciding a business that he's going to start that has to do with it. Um, and a lot of you who've been around the church for a long time, or maybe some of you who haven't been around the church for a long time, you've grown up thinking that, that somehow business, the starting of businesses, your job, whatever that job may be, whether you're, um, you're an insurance adjuster, yes, um, or a lawyer, or you make coffee, or you own a coffee shop, or you, you work at a restaurant, or you work in a clothing, whatever that business is, that, that somehow you've been taught maybe that, that, that you're somehow second class to, to, to people who are preachers or missionaries or in ministry. I remember um, talking to a friend of mine in Texas one time, and he talked about how his job solely existed to support people who wanted to plant churches. And I, um, I was actually having lunch to help raise money to help plant the church, so I had to be really careful. Um, but I told him that if that was the case, then I didn't feel like he was fulfilling the calling of God in his life. Um, in the Bible, the production of wealth is a good thing. It's a gain. It's, a, it's something that God calls people to, to put your hands to, to work. Your job is not second class. It is very, very much at the center of what God is doing on the earth. He wants people to, to, to start businesses, to work jobs, to work with their hands, to produce wealth. 
So Solomon begins with those two premises. The production of wealth is gain, but how you get that wealth matters. And then he moves to his central question that he's been asking throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Where can we find that is not vapor? Where can we find satisfaction? What should we bend our life to all the days, all the short days that we live out our vain, um, if you remember the first week, our small, stupid lives? Where should those lives be lived? What should that life be bent towards? And that's where he begins to address the question now of what about wealth? So verses 10 through 17, he asks the question, what a life, what does a life look like that is Occupied, that is bent on finding satisfaction, finding happiness, that, that loves money. A, a life that, that, that revels in wealth, that seeks after it, that holds on to it, that, that sees that as one of the primary objectives in life, is I need money or I need wealth. Uh, and, and here, Solomon, there, there's a distinction. Money is just, well, it's money, the cash, bank accounts. What if you wrote a check you could legally write it for? Money. Wealth, all the stuff that money gets you. Fast cars. Scooters. <laughs> iPads. New iPads. In a couple days. Phones, new iPhones. Lasers. All the stuff that well that, that they can buy for you. So, so, so he puts two things together here. He says, one, just, just the, the raw fact of possessing money, that, that there's those who love money. And you've met people like this. Wait a second. And then there's those who love wealth. And you know that they're different, right? Like you've probably met people who love money but don't care about wealth. And a friend, a friend's father actually, um, who I grew up with in Texas, he had money and he would refuse to buy new shoes he would literally have holes in his shoes and his wife would take the shoes throw them in the trash and buy him exact same pair new shoes understand she what what he's going after here if you just are somebody who, who loves to accumulate money don't dismiss yourself because you don't buy the nicest car or the nicest stuff don't dismiss yourself that way and then there's these people in uh, Dallas, Texas, <laughs> um, who love wealth, but don't have any money. <laughs> and so, and they're everywhere. So they're here. Don't dismiss it because you're in Denver. Um, you love, and, and it doesn't always look the same. It might not be as blingy and shiny and it, it might be... Um, Way toned down. So um, I, I love to go to Boulder sometimes. I don't want to live there at all. Um, but, but you go into Pearl and you will see um, dreads, hippie, walking into Prada. So anyway, so, so there's wealth and then there's money. You see the difference? Now they usually go together, right? Most of the time if you have money, a lot of times you have Wealth, you revel in it with wealth, but you can have money, you can love money, the Bible says, but not necessarily love wealth, and you can definitely love wealth, but not love, not have <laughs> any money. Uh, um, for instance, there, there are those that you can, you can talk to, maybe, maybe you're in this room, that, that you don't have money, but, but you, you see what everybody else has and you want it. 
and it becomes a goal for you. I, I want what they have. You love wealth. Some of you, you, you look at your jobs, you look at your financial situation, and you just need a little bit more. I just need a, a, a little bit more. I need just a little bit money, more money put away. I need just a little bit more security. I need a little bit more, hey, a stormy day comes, at least I'm taken care of. You, you just, and there's never enough. There's a place of wisdom, we can talk about that, but, but it's never enough. You, you've always, you just need a little bit more. You just need a little bit more money. You're, Deepest fear is that somehow you'd fund it, fall into some, some level of financial insecurity or, or some, um, your, your job might fall away or, or you invested money unwisely in a certain aspect of the market or, or, or why you didn't see it coming. And, and then he begins to talk about the place of money. And is, is this money the place where we're going to find something solid, find some real satisfaction? So he draws... A couple of observations. One, he talks about this man who continues to accumulate wealth. He continues to to gather more and more money. And then there's more people to feed. And more people to pay. And isn't it funny how that works? I mean, I've never experienced it. But maybe you have. You have money and all of a sudden you have a lot of friends. And the more money you get, the more friends you have. And you don't know where they came from. Like old friends from high school calling you. Old friends from college calling you. Old enemies from high school calling you. Hey, just in town. Let's hang out. I'm going overseas. Start a ministry. All kinds of different things where this idea is that, that as this guy, he's observing, Solomon's observing, as this man accumulates money, accumulates wealth, um, gets richer, that more and more people come behind him. And so he finds himself gathering money, but having to feed more and more and more and more people so that he's never able to actually enjoy the wealth that he's gathered because he's, he's having to use it to, to constantly support a whole bunch of other people. And so wealth can't be the thing because if wealth is the thing, that then... Um, then you wouldn't have to constantly give it to more people. You'd be able to accumulate it for yourself and not just constantly give it. Second piece. He says this. He says that um, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, it might be that what he's talking about here is um, that those of us who are rich eat too much. Or... And here's where I think he's going. Because he's talking about taking this money and then the more money he has, the the more workers, the more laborers, the more guards, the more things he has to pay for. I think it's hard to sleep the more you have. And I don't mean just sleep. I I mean, for instance, I I went to China a few years ago um, and I was there for about two weeks and um, we were supposed to be doing ministry with college students and I didn't want to. And so I rebelled and walked into this, um, best described as a slum. Um, people didn't have houses. They didn't, um, there was just kind of like walls with a sheet or a tarp tied across the top. And then a family of five would live there, a tiny little hut. They didn't lock their doors at night. They didn't have doors. They, they didn't have armed guards. They didn't have security systems. They weren't kind of 
constantly thinking as they're out about, what if, what if somebody's trying to break into my house right now and take, take my stuff? And so I, th- I think what, what Solomon's getting at here is that it's hard to sleep because you've got all this stuff and suddenly there's a whole lot more stuff that you've got to protect, that you've got to keep your eye on, that you've got to worry about. And if somebody's just a laborer, if they, if they just are a day worker, they don't have anything, they sleep fine, they're tired. But your life is full, your stomach is full, your house is full. Maybe somebody wants your stuff. I mean, maybe right now, someone wants your stuff. I mean, maybe right now, while you're here at church, that, that people realize that you come to church on Sunday nights. And they want your stuff. Then he sees another evil under the sun, another problem under the sun. A man has riches and he keeps them and he keeps them and he keeps investing them. He's not giving them, he's not passing them out. He, he's um, invest, reinvesting them in business ventures. And one goes south. He's investing him in the stock market and it crashes. A buddy of his comes to him and says, hey, I want to start a business. Can you, can you give me some wealth, some money, so I can get this business started? And his friend's terrible at business, but he's his friend, so he's got to give him money and then it's gone. And so he has a son, but he's got nothing in his hand to give him. So, so how can you build something, how can you seek out satisfaction and find joy in something that you may lose. It may be stolen. It may be badly invested. It may be the best idea in the world, the safest stock ever, GM. Gone. And then there's this last piece. It's like Solomon's kind of ace of spades that he plays like every week, right? You're going to die. Did you know that? You're going to die. And you can't take any of it with you. You're going to die and eventually you'll be naked. Not even your clothes will go with you. I mean, hopefully you won't be naked at your funeral. That would be a funny trick. (laughs) Jenny, take note of that. I would like that. In the end, life under the sun will come to an end. And the thing that you've chased, that you've hoarded, that you've tried to protect, that you've based your happiness on and your joy on, all of it, every last penny, every last shred of clothing, every car, every iPad, all of it, gone. You will leave this world the exact same way you came into it. Naked, possessing nothing. Now keep in mind that Solomon has made perfectly clear that the problem is not wealth itself. The problem is, as he says right there in verse 10, I want you to put your finger on it. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. How much do you need to make to be happy? 
what new outfit will complete you? When will you have the perfect pair of jeans? The car that will exhilarate your heart enough. But lest you think that the love of money or the love of wealth is measured merely by what you will do to get it, if you lost your job tomorrow, how would you do with that? I had, had lunch with another, or not lunch, coffee with another friend this week. And it is pressing reality. He may lose his job this Thursday. 40% of his company is going to lose their jobs this week. Dude's calm as can be. How would you be doing right now? We live in the most, in some ways blessed and in other ways the most dangerous for your soul, society, and culture in the history of mankind. More wealth spread out wider and farther than has ever existed in the history of mankind. And Jesus says that wealth will destroy you. He says that it's easier for a, a, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's not, he's not talking about that wealth is the problem. It's that we are so saturated, surrounded by, raised up in. Um, we are told from every possible angle, from the moment you're born until the moment you die, that, that maybe money can't buy you happiness, but sure is a key ingredient to get there. And... And the, the, the disturbing reality is the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. So I can say to you again and again and again, I can, I can shout to you, I don't love money, I don't love money, I don't love money, I don't love money, but I can come up with a thousand excuses, reasons, clear reasons why I need it. Why I need to keep that job. Why I need to stay in this particular career path, even though there's no joy there, and I know I'm not called there. But why I have to have this security system, or I have to live in this neighborhood, or I've got to have this kind of house, or have the next iPhone, I can give you a billion reasons, logical reasons, and if you're smart, really rational reasons, that will make sense to a lot of people. But trace that desire, trace that need to its root. It's because I love money. need wealth. I, I don't believe happiness and satisfaction won't be found there. I can say it. I, I watched all the cliched movies about how some rich kid is sad and then he finds love and is happy. I had a lot of trouble trying to come up with a movie and I know I've watched like 300 of them. No, 30 maybe. A lot of wealth is from watching movies. So I can say over and over and over again, I can heed the Bible's warnings, I can hear over and over and over again, but I am raised from the beginning. We are told at school, hey, if you don't get a good grade on this test, you won't get a good job. And if you don't get a good job, nobody will like you and you won't have any money and you'll be homeless and poor and your life will be miserable. Or you need to 
find the right investment strategy. You've got to put the money here and the money here and the money here and the money here. And it's got to be spread out in the right buckets. And it's got to be put in the right places. And if you don't get it in the exact right place, then, then when you lose your job or the stock market crashes or your car hits a tree or something miserable happens, then your life will be over. All your friends will leave you and your life will be sad. And I'll use you the next time I have a sales pitch about the guy who didn't put his money in the right place and then he had a car accident. Don't let this text blow past you. Don't let the, the, the reality that all of us, all of us, struggle with this. For you, it may look different. You may not care about cars. You may care about jeans. You may not care about jeans. You may care more about security or, or your kids' security or, or something. Many times, good things. But don't go past this. Please don't go past this. Your heart will lie to you. Do you love money? Do you love wealth? It will keep you from joy. You will never have satisfaction. You will never have enough. Our entire culture and society is driven by this impulse and by this need and by cultivating this love in you. I mean, why do they use sex to sell cars and deodorant and the right kind of spaghetti? Like if you eat this spaghetti, really attractive women will will run to you to have sex with you. If you wear axe, 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 literally you'll be in the airport and women will be sprinting through the airport, through security, to fall at your feet and plead with you to have sex with them. Our whole culture is built on this. Our whole economy is built on the, the, the cultivation in you and in me of this just lie. To make you love wealth, to make you love money. So, so what does Solomon say is better than money? What is his answer? It's the same answer he gives over and over and over and over and over again. So we're going to go after it again. Verse 18. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Now, maybe I misread that. Does anybody's version say, to get rid of all of my belongings, to empty my bank accounts, to wear sackcloth and cover myself in ashes and live on a street corner. Anybody say that? If it does, you should get a new version of the Bible. (laughs) Or I should, or we all should. Um, No, he, he doesn't say that, hey, the answer is this kind of impulse that all of us Christian college kids had. Um, that, that we just need to push off wealth, strip ourselves of all our clothes, only shop at um, designer thrift shops. Um, he, he doesn't say that, right? No, he says, eat, eat good food, drink good wine, and enjoy your work. Whatever it is. If it pays ten grand a year, enjoy it. You maybe should look for a raise before you get married, but 
Enjoy it. Um, literally, the translation is see good in the work that you do with your hands, that, that, that all your days under the sun, just in the few days that you're given, enjoy your food, drink your drink, and find enjoyment in your work. Right? That's what we all... He, he says that's the good that we should want. If you're driven by money, you're not... This isn't what he's talking about. If you're driven by wealth, by having to accumulate more and more wealth, that's not what he's talking about. So that's what he says is, is what we should aim at, what we should desire and long for. So how do we get that, right? How do we get that life? Because that's the good life, he says. Not the need to get more and more and more and more and more. Contentment and joy in what you have. How do we get that? He says, under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. See that? It's a theme he keeps coming back to. How do you get that? Receive this gift. How do you get that? How, how do you get to enjoy your food and your drink, whether it's a Safeway soda or a really good beer? How do you get that? Receive it as a gift. Receive your whole lot. This, this picture that, that Solomon, this word that Solomon keeps using, this idea that, that, that God has allotted each of us, uh, this, this whole life, this whole season, a, a time that we toil, a time that we reap, a time that we sow, a time that we go to war, a time that we find peace, a, a time that we find life and we're born and a time that we die. This whole full... This, this thing that God and His sovereignty and His providence has given you. Receive it as a gift. Um, this word lot, it's interesting. It, it's only used a few other places in the Old Testament. But the other place it's used, I want you to go there with me and see it. It's over in Psalm 16. Flip over there with me. Um, David's singing this, writing this. And he says this, in verse 4. In verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. If you chase after money, if you chase after wealth, if you hoard it, if you hold on to it, if you love it, your sorrows will multiply. Joy will always be kept at bay for you. But look at this. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a bountiful, a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, therefore, do you see this? Therefore, because God is my portion, because I trust that God has established my lot, because I know that God has given me himself, that I know in, in all the various circumstances, in the in the intricate details of my life, whether I know poverty or I know wealth, or whatever it is, God has ordained sovereignly to give me himself through and in those things. 
And because of that, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. David says, take all of my wealth. Take everything from me. Lines have fallen for me in beautiful places, in pleasant places. For the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my cup. The Lord is where I find satisfaction and joy. And all that I have is merely gift. This is Solomon's answer. Receive your life as a gift. Receive your having money or your not having money as a gift. Receive the incredible insecurity in the stock market right now as a gift. Not because you have or you don't have money, but because in all these things, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, God has ordained to give you himself. And whether you have nothing or you have everything, if that's the case, then your portion is bountiful. Wealth is unbounded. Your riches, secure. Quite apart from your circumstances. And so instead of being preoccupied, being driven by, being subtly driven by wealth, or money, be consumed with the reality of God. Our prayer, our hope, our dream for this community is that we would be so preoccupied, so consumed with the grace of God, with the gifts of God, that God has given us himself. It would be utterly full of joy. And because we're full of joy, we're free with our money. We're free to not need the next pair of jeans or the new phone or the new stuff. That we're free to give. We're free to love. We're free to lay down our lives to serve other people and to love our city. To not be compelled or controlled or, or, or enslaved to the styles or the, the way that the river of our culture flows. to be undone by the one who has loved us and given us himself. Um, You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there's an amazing story there. Actually, turn there for fun. This is where we'll end tonight. Paul's writing to Corinth, and um, the interesting thing, when Paul writes his letters, most of the time he writes his letters, he's trying to get money. That's why they're so good. I mean, you should have seen the letter we wrote to try to raise some money. It was good. Okay. So Paul's writing to Corinth, and he's telling them about um, these brothers in Macedonia. Um, he says this, starting in verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, 
in their pleasant circumstances and their rising stock value. They were full of joy and they got a raise and so they gave us some money. No, he says, what does it say? In their severe test of affliction. If you go back to the book of Acts, they're being afflicted. Like they're being beat up. Combined <laughs> with their abundance of joy. So you got joy, you have getting beaten, and joy, and extreme poverty. Result, generosity. Huh? We're getting beaten. I have no money. I don't even know what we're going to eat tomorrow. And I have joy. I'm going to give everything I have away. How? Verse 1 again. The grace of God. Keep going. Verse 4. They're begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They didn't love money. They didn't love wealth. They were consumed with the grace of God. They were undone by God's kindness, by His beauty, by His grace, by His mercy. That their sins were forgiven and they were called children of God. And so they gave themselves to God and as a result of giving themselves to God, they gave themselves to the relief of brothers and sisters. That God would free us from the love of money and wealth, not, not because... We harp on it all the time, not because someone's coming around measuring how much money you put in the box. Because God's grace overwhelms you. Because God's love overwhelms you. That there would be no one in need in this body, not, not, not because we're all amazing, successful business people. Because we lay down our lives for one another. And we serve our city. And all of this is possible because Jesus, Jesus dies that we might know God. He dies that we, our lot, our portion, our cup is better than anything money can buy. It's better than all the security that money can buy. Let's pray. God, I pray you do a few things right now. I pray that your spirit would come and expose us. Where we dote on money, where we dote on wealth, God, expose it to us. God, don't let us stay in our sin. Don't let us stay in our idolatry. Don't let us stay at a distance from joy. But God, call us 
to repentance and then call us to faith. To trust that Jesus is better, that knowing you is better, that being declared righteous by you is better, than, than, that, that giving to your purposes, supporting, loving one another is better. That being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus is better than all the clothes money can buy. That the pleasures that are at your right hand are better than than all the trips and all the vacations and all the experiences money can buy. Oh God, help us to believe that you're better. Let us sing with David that you are our portion, you are our cup, that the lines that you've drawn for us, wherever they are, if they include you, they've fallen in pleasant places. In beautiful places. So Holy Spirit, come and make our Lord and our God our treasure. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. If you are a follower of Jesus, um, if you believe that the gospel is true, that your righteousness is found in Jesus alone, then we call you to this table to take the bread, to dip it in the wine, to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Um, There are three stations, one right here, one right here, and right there, um, as you can see. And uh, um, if you can come, whatever aisle is closest to you, come forward to receive it. And then it'll be best if you walk up the outside and then come in the back to get back to your seats. Let's, let's eat together.